Are you into water sports? Boating, fishing, swimming, jet skiing, or just floating along, soaking up rays in the summer heat? What if your favorite watering hole was actually a mass grave with skeletons, both literal and figurative, lurking underneath, waiting for their next victim? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who has said it before and will say it again, prefers the dangers on land to the ones in the water. Natural bodies of water already offer enough in the way of threats to our safety. Alarming currents, creepy wildlife, surprising tide changes, jagged underwater rock formations. But there's nothing creepier than a man-made body of water. Something troubling happens when people just decide to pour 100,000 gallons of water over people's homes and communities and just pretend they never existed. From Riff Lake in Washington to Shasta Lake or the failed Salton Sea in California, stories abound about the former thriving communities that once sat where these expanses of water, or mud, are now. Today, we'll visit Lake Lanier near Atlanta, Georgia, a lake so creepy and deadly that its dark past may not be all that surprising. On Sunday, May 9th, Mother's Day of 2021, six people were seriously injured when their boat inexplicably exploded while fueling up at a dock at Lake Lanier. That same weekend, three friends jumped off a rented pontoon boat. When two of them swam back up to the surface, they waited for the third, 23-year-old Anthony Saintel Jr., who never resurfaced. His body was found the next day by rescue divers 44 feet underwater. Less than a month before that, 24-year-old Dorian Adonis Pinson went missing after he jumped off a pontoon in Lake Lanier. His body wasn't found until July 14th. 117 feet below the surface. And that wasn't all the deaths that month at Lake Lanier. I couldn't track down a concrete number, but by July of 2021, six people had drowned there. According to southerngothic.com, an estimated 10 to 20 people each year meet their watery fates at Lake Lanier, making it one of the deadliest lakes in the United States. Of course, Lake Lanier's natural resources manager, Nicholas Baggett, says the number is closer to 8 to 12 per year, but I'd downplay the number of deaths, too, if I represented the place. So what the hell is going on at Lake Lanier? Why are so many casual thrill-seekers ending up dead in its waters? What is lurking under the surface of one of Georgia's most popular tourist attractions? Lake Lanier was the brainchild of Atlanta Mayor William J. Hartsfield, who in 1947 wanted to expand Atlanta and, according to the Georgia State Signal, minimize, quote, urban areas that neighbored the city. Which is funny, considering the lake was largely made atop farmland. What kind of urban areas are you minimizing with that? Also, do I spot some coded language? Of course I do. Side note, much of Lake Lanier shoreline is accessible in Forsyth County, an historic stronghold of the KKK. So, 
The government folks came in with their eminent domain papers and promised the some 700 families who owned land in the area that they would be paid the full value of their properties. And if you believe that, then have I got a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. The thing about buying land for its current value is that it ignores the fact that for many, owning property is the foundation of generational wealth. Sure, you can pay me the appraised price of $100,000 for my land, but what about the decades of use and product that I'll be handing over with it? Who's going to compensate me for that? A lot of families were super reluctant to go, but go they did because what choice did they have? Once the land was clear of pesky humans, what with their homes and farms and lives and all, the Army Corps of Engineers came in and prepared the area to be flooded by clearing away some of the structures they thought might eventually dislodge themselves and float to the surface of the man-made lake. They didn't clear everything, though. According to a piece on styleblueprint.com, a lot of the structures, buildings, and roads were left intact, including a racetrack and, of course a cemetery. In fact, some experts claim there are as many as 20 cemeteries at the bottom of Lake Lanier. And along with the actual ghosts, there was an entire ghost town that was flooded over and remains at the bottom of the lake. By the early 20th century, the town of Oscarville had about 1,100 black residents, many of whom had been freed from slavery after serving in the Civil War. The town was filled with businesses and families like any other American town. But in 1912, an 18-year-old white woman named Sleety Mae Crow was raped and murdered in Oscarville. Four black people, two teens and two young adults, were arrested with no evidence pointing to their guilt except that they happened to live near where the atrocities took place. One of them, Robert Big Rob Edwards, didn't even get a chance to stand trial. A white mob broke into his jail cell and murdered him in a truly horrific and, unfortunately, not uncommon way for the time. Bands of angry white people with guns and torches took to the streets in the weeks that followed, terrorizing the black residents and business owners, driving nearly everyone off their land and out of town. About a month after the rape and murder, two of the three surviving suspects were sentenced to death, and more than 5,000 people came to watch the 16- and 18-year-old get hanged for a crime most people think they didn't commit. Almost everyone fled Oscarville after that. According to a piece in the Gainesville Times from January of 2022, quote, records suggest that black residents did, however, lose the land they once owned in Oscarville after they were driven out of the county after 1912. According to Elliot Jaspin, an historian and journalist, only about 24 of the 40 black landowners in Forsyth County at the time were able to sell their land. The other properties have no record of sale, and some believe the abandoned land was simply taken by white residents. End quote. And then the whole town met its own watery demise at the hands of the Army Corps of Engineers and progress when in 1947, Mayor Hartsfield decided to make a lake and name it after, of all things, a Confederate Army veteran. And so it's no wonder, what with its shadowy past and origin story, that people have come to believe that Lake Lanier is haunted or cursed. 
And you know me, I don't really believe in that kind of thing, but after learning some of the weird shit from Lake Lanier's past, it's hard not to wonder about a hex on the place. If you've listened to any other water-themed episodes of this podcast, you'll know I'm not a huge fan of it. Water, that is, not this podcast. I am the hugest fan of this podcast. Water is the realm of the fishes and other slimy creatures. And otters, which are objectively the best, and you can't fault them for living where they do. But unless the water is coming out of my faucet, you can keep it. It's bad enough when there's swimming things to contend with, but when someone says something like, quote, you reach out into the dark and you feel an arm or a leg and it doesn't move, that's creepy, end quote. Like diver Buck Buchanan said in an interview for a local CBS affiliate, you can count me out. Creepy does not begin to describe touching a human body part underwater that doesn't move. Now, a little bit ago, I bagged on Nicholas Baggett about possibly downplaying the numbers of drownings at the lake each year. But in his defense, he also admits that there have been hundreds of suicides, drownings, and boat accidents over the years at Lake Lanier. In addition to the weird, inexplicable boat explosion of May 2021 and the two swimmers who drowned around the same time, there have been more strange deaths at the lake in recent times that no one can explain. On January 5th of 2015, at around 4 in the morning, 24-year-old Kelly Nash woke up coughing and sneezing and just generally feeling awful. He told his girlfriend, Jessica, he was feeling so bad he thought he should go to the doctor. When Jessica woke up later that morning around 7.30, Kelly was gone, but his wallet, car keys, and ID were still there. Jessica waited until the evening and then called police to report her boyfriend missing. That's when they discovered that Kelly's 9mm pistol was the only one of his belongings that was missing, along with Kelly himself. Despite a massive search and a reward of $50,000 for any information, it was a month before Kelly's body was found by a fisherman in Lake Lanier. His body was badly decomposed, wearing the pajamas he'd been wearing the morning he went missing. The only sign of trauma anywhere on his body was a single gunshot wound to the head. No one knows what the hell any of this was about. What drove a healthy, save for some flu-like symptoms, 24-year-old man to walk out of his house, barefoot and in his pajamas, in January without taking any of his belongings with him except his gun. And how did he end up dead in the water? One might assume suicide, but apparently his girlfriend didn't mention any depression or suicidal ideation. Did someone very quietly break into his house and then very quietly take him at gunpoint with his own gun, guide him either on foot or by car to the shore of Lake Lanier and then shoot him? If so, why? Also, could you imagine being that poor fisherman who discovered his body? Like, how do you ever come back from that? No more fishing for that guy. And probably no more eating fish either. Blech. Moving on. A couple years before Kelly Nash mysteriously died at Lake Lanier, 
On August 24, 2011, 16-year-old Hannah Trulove from Gainesville, Georgia was found dead in the woods behind the apartment she shared with her mother near Lake Lanier. She had been stabbed multiple times, though officials couldn't determine if the stab wounds were what killed her. All they could say was that she hadn't drowned, which stands to reason considering she was in the woods, not the water. By the time Hannah was found, rain had washed away any useful evidence. Just about two weeks before she turned up dead, Hannah had sent a series of cryptic tweets. On August 12th, she wrote, quote, I got me an ugly-ass stalker, end quote, with an emoticon that I had to Google but couldn't decipher. It's a collection of dashes resembling the expression I have when a man on the street tells me to smile. That tweet, by the way, was retweeted 88 times by September 10th of that year. What? Who? What? Where am I? I tweet out objective comedy gold, and it gets fewer retweets than that tweet. I only hope all 88 people who retweeted it also took the time to reach out to Hannah to ask if she was okay. She then tweeted, quote, this can't be happening, dot, 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 end quote, and, quote, I swear to God, if this is for real, dot, 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 end quote. One thing about this modern age we live in is that having an electronic record of someone who died years ago is incredibly strange. The worst part, I think, is that teenagers seem to use social media as a coded, passive-aggressive communication tool, tweeting out random lyrics or statements only one other person would understand. And while the rest of us get to mature and stop doing things like that, someone who dies mere days after tweeting, quote, I just love how bitches try to start shit. LOL, can you be any more desperate for my attention? End quote. Or, quote, oh, LOL, you unfollowed me. That's cool. End quote. Or, quote, if my tummy doesn't stop hurting, I'm going to the doctor. Sad face. End quote. These are the words of note to remember this person by. To be clear, I'm not making fun of or putting Hannah down. She was a teenager. Teenagers are strange, alien beings whose choices and behaviors are literally inexplicable. Scientists have tried for centuries. It's just an unfortunate product of our time that if you die young these days, you don't get a chance to redeem yourself online. And the weird, nonsensical shit you said while hormones were hijacking your body will haunt you for the rest of eternity. That's one of the reasons I am so grateful the internet didn't exist when I was a teenager. I cringe just thinking about what incredible stupidity I would have put online. Hell, I put a lot of stupid things online now and I'm 42. I just get to balance those out with other tweets that hopefully redeem me somewhat. I can control the narrative around my life, but... Hannah couldn't with the story of her death. Who knows what she wanted to get across in those tweets. Anyway, scrolling through Hannah's Twitter is still an exercise in peeking into her world, especially in her last couple weeks alive. On the 18th, Hannah tweeted, quote, so scared right now. And then on the 22nd, 10 days after tweeting about her stalker and two days before she was murdered, she tweeted, quote, I need to move out of the dang apartments, end quote. 
And then on the 24th, a witness said she saw a guy pull up to the apartment building in a silver sedan and walk away. When he returned, Hannah was walking about 10 to 15 steps behind him. They walked across the parking lot and behind the building. The woods behind the building is where Hannah's body was eventually found. But the weird part is, she was seen alive and well, according to Sergeant Dan Franklin, an hour or so after going behind the apartment complex with the young man. As far as I could tell, the guy was named a person of interest, but he must have been cleared because he wasn't arrested. Even the ugly-ass stalker Hannah tweeted about was cleared. To this day, apparently no one knows what happened to Hannah True Love. Not a single person has come forward to be like, oh yeah, about that. Her page on the Georgia Bureau of Investigation website is remarkably sparse, and I get it. They can't put too much information out there if they want to try to get a genuine confession, but still. And to be clear, they are still waiting for some kind of confession or at least more information because Hannah's case is still open. But if relatively run-of-the-mill, albeit mysterious, deaths aren't your thing, Lake Lanier has also seen its share of super mysterious, they just blooped right off the face of the earth disappearances that might interest you. On a spring evening in 1958, 23-year-old Delia Parker Young and 38-year-old Susie Roberts went out for a night on the town at the Three Gables in Dawsonville near Lake Lanier. I don't know what the Three Gables was, but it was 1958, so it's safe to assume it was some kind of sock hop drive-in dealie with a lot of saddle shoes, high-waisted slacks, and kids saying things like, Beat it, daddy-o! At some point in the evening, the two women stopped at a gas station and left without paying. After that, as far as anyone knows, Delia and Susie ceased to exist. The only clue was a set of skid marks across the road from the gas station that seemed to lead toward Lanier Bridge and then disappeared, leading investigators to assume that the car had skidded off the bridge and into the lake. So naturally, a team of divers was sent down to the lake where the car apparently drove off the road. But there was no car there. To be fair, the water in that part of the lake is murky, and there's basically an entire forest underwater that used to be a regular land forest. But still, no sign of an entire car and the two human beings who were in it. 18 months after the women went missing, with not a clue to be had anywhere, fishermen, these poor guys, found a badly decomposed corpse in Lake Lanier. The body was thought to be that of Delia Parker Young, though how they determined that it was her and not Susie Roberts or someone else entirely is a mystery, considering the body was missing two toes from its left foot and both hands. As far as anyone knew, Delia had both her hands and her toes were intact the night she went missing. So the body sort of believed to be Delia's was buried in an unmarked grave. And despite, again, having no real idea that the body buried belonged to Delia, it was generally believed that the body that was still missing belonged to Susie. And then, even though probably Delia got a burial, albeit in an unmarked grave, and Susie was still presumably at the bottom of the lake, legend has it that Delia's ghost haunts the shores of Lake Lanier in the blue dress she was wearing the night she went missing. She can't rest, they say, because 
she's looking for her hands. And can I just say, honey, you're dead. Move on. You really need hands so bad where you are? I would imagine that when you get to heaven, you can just kind of order whatever you want. And if you're going to hell, you really need hands. Oh, God, maybe if you're in hell without hands, the devil curses you to an eternity of dermatitis. I guess she's in purgatory, so maybe it's just something to do. Incidentally, in a very loosely related story that I'll tell just for funsies, when I was in Les Mis 7,000 years ago in the early 90s, there was one night when whoever was playing Fontaine was leaving the show and asked the wig department to let her wear the long, beautiful, pre-sex worker Fontaine wig in the finale when she came on as a ghost, guiding Jean Valjean to heaven. They let her, but management was not pleased. And, like, sure, there are union rules about this kind of thing. You are contractually obligated to wear the proper costumes and wigs. But it made sense to me that once Fontaine got to heaven, she would look the way she did before she was ravaged by poverty, tuberculosis, and probably syphilis. You know? Like, what's the point of heaven if you can't look your best? Could you imagine some syphilitic, flea-ridden, starving woman appearing at your deathbed like, (coughs) come with me, trust me, (coughs) it'll be awesome. I'd be like, uh, is there an option B? So Delia's poor ghost seems doomed for an eternity to wander Georgia looking for her hands and toes, I guess. And then, in 1990, during construction of a bridge, a rusted-out 1950s-era Ford sedan with a 1958 license plate was found 110 feet down in the mud at the bottom of Lake Lanier. As workers cleared the car of decades of mud and debris, they found the skull and bones of Susie Roberts. Her two sons, who had been teenagers at the time of her disappearance, were, understandably, extremely relieved to finally have an answer. In the more than 30 years since she had gone missing, the men basically believed she was probably in the lake, but apparently rumors had spread that she had fled town and was in either Chicago or Florida, of all places. I think the only thing worse than losing a parent suddenly and mysteriously with no answers would be to find out, after all those years of searching, that they ran away to Florida. Of course, no one knows how or why the car careened off the road into the lake. I like to think maybe it was a proto-Thelma and Louise moment. Okay, then, listen. Let's not get caught. What are you talking about? Let's keep going. What do you mean? Go! But... More likely, they just had too much spiked punch at the dance and lost control of the car. How the whole car wasn't found for decades with teams of divers searching for it? Who knows? Could be all those trees and cement buildings in the way, but probably it was aliens. Come to mention it, there is a surprising lack of alien gossip surrounding the weird goings-on at Lake Lanier. As we've learned, usually when there are a bunch of inexplicable things happening in and around the same area, the alien theories abound. But Lake Lanier has so far pretty much steered clear of the alien conspiracy theories, which, as far as I'm concerned, makes it obvious that it actually is an alien conspiracy. 
They let you believe they're doing all kinds of nefarious shit in the Bermuda Triangle or wherever. And while you're distracted looking over there, they're busy doing weird shit at Lake Lanier right under our noses. Clever, those aliens. But I'm on to you. Delia, or the Lady of the Lake, as she's been deemed, isn't the only ghostly apparition to haunt the waters of Lake Lanier. There is a ghostly raft with its ghostly rider that glides through the waters late at night, seemingly appearing and disappearing out of nowhere. Two fishermen reported seeing the rider suddenly shout and jump into the icy waters one autumn night around 1 a.m. The fishermen, understandably spooked, pulled up their fishing lines and hightailed it out of there, but... As they quickly row-row-rowed their boat, they looked back, shining their flashlights where the raft had been, and it was gone. Now, look, is it possible the fishermen, out for a nighttime fishing expedition, had had a few too many Miller High Lifes and thought they saw something they didn't actually see? Yes, of course. Is it more interesting to believe they saw what they said they saw? Yes. Could we go further and surmise that maybe they were having a Lake Lanier-style broke-back mountain moment on their boat, thought maybe they got caught or spotted and so concocted some story about a ghost raft to cover their proverbial asses? Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. And then there's the monster-sized catfish that troll the murky bottoms of Lake Lanier. In my opinion, regular-sized catfish are creepy enough. You're not fooling anyone with those whiskers, buddy. But fisher people and divers alike have claimed to have seen catfish in the lake up to seven feet long. That's literally the size of a shark, people. And while they usually live in the deepest parts of the lake, they have been known to stalk cats and dogs that wander too close to the shore. In the 1980s, a chicken truck went off the road and plunged into the water, sending gargantuan, bewhiskered fish soaring to the surface to munch on whole chickens like so many sweaty dudes at an all-you-can-eat spearmint rhino buffet. Incidentally, if the thought of bird-eating fish doesn't creep you out, and obviously I'm not talking about sharks eating penguins because who doesn't love that? I invite you to watch the clip we'll be putting on our social medias of massive catfish stalking and eating pigeons along a riverbank. You may think twice before eating that catfish po' boy. But the catfish nightmare doesn't end there. According to Lake Lanier's own website, lakelanier.com, there is the legend of fish head. And I'm not talking about the great song by Tiny Tim. It's said that a woman expecting her firstborn was walking the shore of Six Mile Creek, enjoying the sun and shadows at the back of this creek where it empties into the lake. The story goes on that a giant catfish chasing prey, probably a fish or a frog, splashed up near the shore and frightened the woman to such a degree that when her baby was born, he had the features of that very catfish. His eyes were small and beady. His mouth was nothing but a lipless slit in his face, and he never grew hair. His skin was pale gray, and his feet and hands had webs between the toes and fingers. This child was to become known in the local community as Fishhead. He was ridiculed and made fun of so much that he shrank from society. 
As a boy, he played by himself, retreating into the woods along the back of Six Mile Creek, fishing and playing with the animals that lived there. The animals accepted him as another animal and soon learned that this creature was kind and gentle and would never hurt them. His mother tried to send him to school, but the other children made fun of him and ridiculed him so much that he came home in tears after the first few days in school and his mother never sent him back. Fishhead's mother died when he was in his teens, and because he never had a father or any other relatives, he took up living in the woods along Six Mile Creek and established a home in the rocks at the back of the arm of the lake where the creek pours in. Some people got a glimpse of Fishhead every now and then, and rumors started that a monster was living alongside the creek. These reports gave a couple of scoundrels an idea that they would capture this creature and put him on display, charging money for people to look at him, so they set out in a wooden boat to capture Fishhead. As they approached the back of the lake arm, they heard a splash, and a few minutes later, they were gone. Nothing was ever found except their boat, with claw marks on the side, as if some animal had grabbed the side and turned the boat over. I don't know if this story is true or not, but I've been up Six Mile Creek right at dark, at the end where the creek pours in, and I've seen movements in the woods that were obviously made by something large, and I've heard something swimming in the water that made more sound than a fish or anything as large as a beaver could have made. This sound was made by something swimming that had to be as large as a man. Or fish head. We sure do love our ghost stories. Leave it to us humans to search for metaphysical reasons for terrible things happening, when the truth is probably far more worldly and pedestrian. It's easier and more fun to say a place is haunted or cursed than it is to admit that all of the places we know and love in this country were built where people had been living for decades or centuries. Maybe it's our guilt of displacing people that makes us come up with ghost stories. Maybe it's not the hundreds of people who were run off the land where Lake Lanier is today that haunts its current occupants and visitors. Maybe it's our own consciousness. The truth is, Lake Lanier was never meant to be a tourist attraction, host to speedboats, pontoons, water slides, jet skis, or whatever other fakakta nonsense people like to do in the water. It was supposed to provide power to the surrounding areas, preventing flooding, and, you know, cut down on those pesky urban areas. There are buildings, roads, racetracks, and whole forests down there, and as the water recedes, which apparently it's doing, all those underwater obstacles are getting closer to the surface every day, making them even easier to get tangled up in. No matter how hard it is to face, the truth has a way of floating up to the surface eventually. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan... I'll take you on a trip to Point Pleasant, West Virginia to meet the strange moth-like creature terrorizing their skies, the Mothman. 
We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca Gregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and researched by Jess McKillop. Our audio editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actor for this episode was Ryan Garcia. Our social channels are run and managed by Amy Sapp. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. 